0: This week on the Discover the Word podcast, Bill Crowder says that we're going to dive into the deep end of the pool with the subject we're talking about. We're going to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity.
1: It's a subject that's been wrestled with for 2,000 years, and we haven't gotten a good way to figure it out. We can't do what 2,000 years of scholarship has not been able to do. We can't unravel the mysteries of the Trinity, but we can look at some scriptures where we see them together in one place and see what they are doing together on our behalf and why the Trinity matters.
0: And that's what we're going to be doing for the next hour here on Discover the Word. And even though it may be impossible for us to get our minds completely around this, our hope is that as we talk about the Trinity, God in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we'll be encouraged by the greatness of our God and the great love that he has for us. Pull a chair up with Bill Crowder, Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, and Daniel Ryan Day for this Discover the Word study, God in Three Persons. And welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries with Bill Crowder, Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, and Daniel Ryan Day. Now, Bill is going to be guiding the group this time around in thinking about this topic of the Trinity. One theologian wrote that we do not hold the doctrine of the Trinity because it is self-evident or logically cogent. We hold it because the scriptures reveal that this is what God is like. So I hope you're not intimidated by the fact that we're kind of highlighting the struggle that everyone has to fully understand what this God in three persons idea is, but that you're more curious and open to how this can help us to think about God. This is one of the advantages of studying the Bible in community with a group of friends like this, and so we're glad you're here at the table with us. Bill, let's get started with this Discover the Word study, God in three persons.
1: In the classic hymn, Holy, 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 there's a line that is kind of just filled with mystery I'd like for us to wrestle with for a minute. At the end of the first verse says, God in three persons blessed Trinity. Hmm. Should we sing it
2: together?
1: <laughs> no, I think for the sake of the audience, we ought not. But uh, it's a fascinating and difficult and I think very mysterious concept, isn't it? One God in three persons. Mm-hmm.
3: Hmm. And that word Trinity, mm-hmm. am I right, Bill, it's not even used in the Bible? Is that correct?
1: That is correct. The word Trinity does not appear in the Bible, but then there are a lot of words we use in church world that don't necessarily appear in the Bible, but we're pretty sure that they're telling us something that's true. And we'll talk about whether that's the case with Trinity or not, but what are some ways you've heard the concept of Trinity try to be described?
4: I've heard it described like, uh, like an egg. Mm-hmm. You got the shell, you got the white, and then you have the meat.
3: Or water, the molecules in the air versus liquid versus frozen. I've heard that. Mm
4: -hmm. And together they're one, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
3: It's all the same thing, different expressions of water.
2: Yeah, there's a somewhat controversial in church world explanation of a clover Mm -hmm. and the different petals of a clover and but one clover. Huh. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And the one thing that all of those descriptions have in common is they're very unsatisfying. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) They don't really get to the issue of how one God can manifest himself in three distinct personalities and yet be one God. And it's a subject that's been wrestled with for 2,000 years, and we haven't gotten a good way to figure it out. And I guess what I want to know is, does that bother you
4: or comfort you that we can't figure it out? <laughs> yes, you, both. You know, Bill, with me, I have trouble just with God, period. I mean, when you talk about <laughs> figuring it out. That's right, yeah. I mean, to me, if I could understand how there could be a God, period, mm. in the first place. hmm mm-hmm. And it seems like, well, the Trinity, I guess that's no big problem.
1: (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure, but that's okay. I think that's part of what makes it mysterious is that it
2: is really hard to get our heads around, Daniel. Mm -hmm. I resonate a lot with what Mart's describing because it seems like how to explain the God or how to describe this God seems like lesser of an issue than the initial belief that God exists. Mm. Describing him as Trinity is easier. Yeah than some of those bigger questions maybe that we struggle with first.
3: I guess I'm helped when I read in Scripture about the three distinct persons of the Godhead, meaning God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And I see, for instance, the Apostle Paul talking about in Romans 8 how the Spirit prays for us. Or, you know, I see Jesus himself talking about the Spirit Mm -hmm. or talking about the Father. You know, when I see that Mm -hmm. interaction and that conversation by God himself, about himself. That somehow, this is a hard word, but legitimizes this Mm -hmm. three-in-one concept for me.
2: And there's also a level two to it where like it's good, I think, that we struggle to get our minds around it. Because as soon as we feel like we understand God, then it's probably not God anymore. (laughs) Right? As soon as we get our minds around who God is, then If we really can get our mind around it, then he's just another person. So the fact that we struggle with it, I think, is where I do find comfort. Yeah, that's good, Daniel. Yeah, the troubling part is that we basically, I
1: think, would rather have a God that we can figure out because we like to be in control. But the comforting part is that the God described in the Bible is so big and beyond us that He is beyond description, and that means he's bigger than we can comprehend, and that also has that comforting element to it, as you were saying, Daniel. Elisa, I like the distinction that you made because that's what I want us to do this week. We want to look at some scriptures where we see the three persons uh, together. And we can't do what 2,000 years of scholarship has not been able to do. We can't unravel the mysteries of the Trinity. But we can look at some scriptures where we see them together in one place and see what they are doing collaboratively together on our behalf and why the Trinity matters for us so personally. So I want us to begin just in our first conversation with First Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now, Peter, of course, was the leader of the disciples. He was the fisherman who denied Jesus, was restored. And uh, he's writing to followers of Christ who've been scattered because of persecution. So as he
2: opens his letter, Daniel, would you read 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2? Sure. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure.
1: Now, uh, nothing complex there. Um,
2: Yeah, I was just thinking, we were just talking about how difficult the Trinity concept is. There's about 12 words in there that are complicated words. Yeah,
1: Yeah, and I want us to look at a couple of them, because there are a couple of them in particular that I think we often misunderstand. Mm -hmm. Uh, And because we misunderstand them, we don't really get the value that I think the Scriptures intend. The first of those words speaks of God the Father, and it speaks of His foreknowledge, Mm-hmm. We're back on the mystery train again, mm-hmm. because there's mystery and foreknowledge. How have you often heard that word defined? Just real quick. God knowing
3: beforehand.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems very simple. However, it's very interesting. One of my favorite writers, because he wrote from such a pastoral perspective, was Warren Weersby. I just love Dr. Weersby and the way he put things. Listen to what he said, and he cited about six different verses where the word foreknow is used this way. Wearsby said in the Bible, to foreknow means to set one's love on a person or persons in a personal way. Now, how different is that than just knowing beforehand?
3: Mm-hmm. It takes me to Psalm 139 about David's writing of God's creating him in his mother's womb and about how he knows. A word before it was on his tongue and his thoughts mm. from afar. It, there is a beyond just knowing what's going to happen, there is this connection that based on love that it, it surrounds the entire relationship. Mm. It
4: speaks so personally to how God feels about us. Yeah, mm. the New Living says, uh, God the Father who knew you and chose you long ago.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah. And what Wiersbe is saying is that was fueled by his love for us. Hmm. It wasn't just an arbitrary act. It was born out of his love. The other word in here, if we skip the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, which sanctifying means to make holy or to set apart for God's use, the other word is to obey. And it's a word that we've talked about a lot on the program and other conversations. What's the problem with the word obey?
4: It sounds authoritarian.
1: And by definition, I mean, God has the right to be authoritarian, but that doesn't mean that it is his intent to be authoritarian with
4: us. Yeah, and I think the problem for me is that if you're going to be authoritarian, you've got somebody who is, by his authority, telling us that we have to love him. And Mm. he's just kind of like, that just doesn't
2: seem to work.
3: Yeah, because forced love really isn't love.
2: Right. Right. Does it help at all, though, that this is Peter that's writing, and he's calling his readers to obey so it's not really God calling them to obey; it's Peter admonishing, encouraging, challenging them to obey. Does that help in this context, or is it still? Are we still kind of feeling that same tension? Yeah. Where did Peter get it?
3: Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Yeah. Obey me. Yeah. It gets kind of confusing, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. I th- I think what clears it up for me, Daniel, is that both in Hebrew and Greek, the word for obey means to hear. Yeah. To <laughs> listen to. Yeah. To hearken to pay attention. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, that casts it in a totally different light.
4: I think that makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: It really means have a heart that's responsive to Jesus. Mm -hmm. What better way could we live our lives than trying to be responsive to him and to respond to his heart and his desires and his longings and his purposes? I mean, what better way to live than to live a life where our heart is responding and reverberating
4: with his heart yeah to pay attention to the one who loves us you know yeah. by yeah. such self-sacrifice
3: mm.
1: I think even as we look at this very first example of the three persons of the Trinity we see them working on our behalf the father who set his love on us the spirit who sets us apart so that we can be part of God's work in the world and the son whose heart can guide us through life if we set our hearts to respond to him. It's no wonder that the very last phrase of this statement is, may grace and peace be yours. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because with the Father, Son, and Spirit working on our behalf so richly and so wonderfully, grace and peace seem to be the natural consequences of that.
4: And when grounded in a trust that has considered the evidence of Christ, then we're not just trusting just anything or an idea that's so far beyond us, Mm. but we're trusting one whose story just resonates with our needs and who he showed himself to be.
2: Yeah, and how comforting that would be to the people Peter's writing to, because the verse begins with those who are strangers or aliens scattered throughout all the world. And one of the things we know about being scattered is We feel isolated in those situations. We feel alone. And how comforting it would be to know that there is this God who has thought about us ahead of time, who has set his love on us, who sends his spirit to comfort us and walk with us, and who looks to win our hearts over through this love of Christ that not only is love toward us, but that is love that fills us so that we can then— as strangers and aliens in the world love others as well.
1: I think it's really good, Daniel, and I think the comforting thing about all of that is that even though the Trinity and even the existence of God himself may be a mystery, his presence in our lives is something that we can live in and know and appreciate and rely on as we walk with him day by day. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is the story of Joseph. And there's one phrase in there that I just find so lovely. Mm -hmm. It's when they're talking about the relationship between Joseph's father, Jacob, with Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. And they describe that relationship as Jacob's life is
4: bound up in the lad's life Mm. so you're saying the father's life is bound up in the child's Mm. life. yeah is that what it is Yeah, and the point that the guy's making is
1: if benjamin doesn't go home dad'll die from grief because they're Mm. so intertwined
3: together there's a favoriteness to it you know this is the favorite child syndrome you know where the parent has a favorite child but i remember that phrase bill bound up of abigail when she's speaking to David, when David's mm. about to kill Nabal, her crazy husband, and she reminds David of his relationship with God, and she talks about remember that your life is bound up with God. Uh-huh. I-, I think it's the same phraseology. And to me, it means there is this bond, you know, this um, unconditional kind of commitment. It's a favoriteness that occupies the first place in your heart.
2: Would a modern illustration of that be something like where people lose someone that they deeply love, like a spouse or something like that. And then they pass away and you hear the doctors talking about how there's like nothing medically wrong. And so they end up distinguishing that as they died from a broken heart. So if you die, I die, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: It's also maybe a little bit like the word we use soulmate. It's kind of intangible bond Mm -hmm. back to the bond.
1: Yeah, words that um, maybe help me with this idea, and I think your illustration's a really good one, Daniel, because there's an interconnectedness between those people that seems unbreakable. Even death can't break that connection. They are so intertwined Mm -hmm. uh, together. They are so interwoven together in their hearts and in their beings, and uh To me, I I just think that that's just a powerful idea for relationship, as we're talking about it now, at its very best, because there's full engagement on both people's parts in that relationship, and that that kind of relationship, I think, is
4: rare. Doesn't it cross boundaries, though? I mean, if if my life is so wrapped up and bound up in my wife or in anyone that I have no life beyond that, mm. it seems like there's a loss of boundaries, a loss of soul in that. And I think that's a good
1: caution, Mart, because I think anything that has goodness and richness to it can be abused and taken in the wrong direction. And I think that's a really wise caution because we know of relationships like that that are codependent, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think we understand that that's not healthy. Mm. But there's a healthy connectedness that I think that phrase bound up in Mm -hmm. can really help us with. And the reason I wanted us to think about that today is because we began yesterday not trying to unravel the mystery of the Trinity, but just trying to examine a few places in the scriptures where we see Father, Son, and Spirit mentioned together and see what that can tell us about what the Godhead, the three-person God does, and what that can mean for us in our lives. And Today, we want to look at Ephesians chapter 4. And what I want to suggest to you is the way Paul writes this description, the context. Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's prefaced this with a statement about our unity, our oneness together as followers of Jesus in Christ, that we are one in Christ. But it's almost like in verses 4 through 6, he raises the intensity of it. So that it's not just that as followers of Jesus, our lives are bound up together, but the way he presents this is as if God himself is bound up in that as well, that his life is woven together in the life of the body of Christ, the church. So let's look at Ephesians 4. Elisa, would you read verses 4 through 6? And uh, you'll hear the three members of the Trinity loud and clear, but after she reads it, we'll go back and talk about it a little bit.
3: Elisa? Sure. Okay, Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all.
2: Bill, I didn't hear Jesus referenced there. Jesus is referenced with
1: the word Lord because as we know in the New Testament, and most specifically actually in the Gospel of Luke. Luke, interestingly, uses the word Lord to describe Jesus more than any other word and more than any other book in the New Testament. But we have Spirit in verse 4, we have Lord in verse 5, referencing Jesus, and then we have God the Father in verse 6. So those are the three persons of the Godhead. Now, let me just throw one thing at you. What you have in these three verses are, in a sense, three sets of three. Hmm. Huh? You have the Spirit <laughs> okay. with one body and one hope. You have the Lord with one faith and one baptism. Ah. And you have the Father who is first over all, second through all, and third in all. <laughs> hmm. So there are three threes in this discussion of the three persons of the Godhead and his engagement with the church. Now, that all sounds really heady. So how do we get that a little bit more uh, relatable?
4: Yeah, and the question is why are there three threes, right?
1: Yeah. Obviously, nobody knows because Paul doesn't tell us why he wrote it this way. One theory is that it was written kind of as an early creed. And so it was written that way as a memory device to help people learn it so that they could remember these basic ideas of truths, even as the scriptures were in the process of being written.
3: You know, Bill, I'm really grateful for that explanation, because when my heart wants to respond to your question about why are there three threes, I go, this is an example of when at times I feel like the Bible makes itself so impossible to access for me, for the regular person, you know, some kind of a lock that I don't have the key to. And you're saying that maybe Paul is simply borrowing a memory technique from culture. And that that's like, oh, because I just feel so lost at times when I'm reading hmm. Scripture and it comes off that way.
4: Hmm. Yeah, let me come from the other side of the fence in this. Elisa. you know, when it talks about there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, there's also a sense in which those ideas are woven together so that it's not just three Mm -hmm. things. It's like three things that are intimately connected. connected to one another. And so I think there may be a richness in three threes. And that was really my
1: point, Mart, with the illustration of Jacob and Benjamin. His life is bound up in the lad's life. I think the strategy of it may be to give early believers something that they could sink their teeth into and really get their ideas around. But the heart of it, I think, is exactly what you're saying, Mart. It's to show us just how deeply God has invested himself in his people Mm -hmm. and in the body of Christ. And when you think about that, you think one spirit who unites us in the common life of one body and gives us one hope. You think of the Lord who has called us to faith and who identifies with us in one baptism. And then you think about the father who no matter what any of us are gonna face any day of our lives, he is over it, he is through it, he is in it. He can handle it. Mm. And that interconnectedness of all those ideas, I think, make a powerful statement of just how deeply God wants to engage in our lives.
2: Mm. I think, too, the context of this really helps us get a picture of what Paul is describing, too, because this is about unity between believers. Mm. And if there's one thing that all of us have experience and it's how we tend to focus on what we disagree with often more than what we agree with. Mm, And so this repetition of the word one, one faith, one baptism, one God, you have all these different people in these churches around Ephesus who come from different places and different life experiences and different understandings of who God is. And he's drawing them together around this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are a very picture of unity and invite us into unity with them, but also in unity with one another.
4: That adds a lot. I think that's really good. We are so Mm -hmm. fractured, aren't we?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
4: And I think that leads us to another
1: set of three almost, because we have the one God who is in perfect unity. We have the church, the body of Christ that we live in together in imperfect unity, but the Father himself joins with us in that body to help us find the best kind of unity. One of the problems that all of us have in church is that so much of the time, church is just a mess and we're all over the place Mm. and we can't agree on anything and we give a divided witness to the world. And all the time, I think what Paul is trying to express to us is beloved, these things ought not so to be. (laughs) We should, by the unifying power of our triune God, one God, three persons, we should be able to unify together in him to present him better to the world. Mm. I think if I get frustrated with that, I'm amazed at God's patience with
2: us. (laughs) Yeah. And you mentioned patience, Bill. That's another descriptor that comes right before the section we just read. Yep, Because he's describing this, worthy of the calling to which you have been called, right? To be like Christ with... Humility, gentleness, patience. And so, like, there's even these qualities that define who God is this God of humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity in the bond of peace. We're able to do that only when we rest in the God who is the perfect picture of all of those qualities so that it can overflow as we interact with one another.
0: Seeing how an understanding of the Trinity can model for us the kind of unity that we should have as we interact within the body of Christ. That's a helpful conversation with Discover the Word group members Bill Crowder, Elisa Morgan, Marty Hahn, and Daniel Ryan Day as part of this series called God in Three Persons. And when we continue, Bill's going to take us to a familiar passage, the Great Commission, to see how the Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can make what seem like an impossible and overwhelming task and mission much more doable and reasonable. That after this word about some other materials on this subject of the Trinity that you may find helpful. An important topic on the Discover the Word podcast. And when you visit our discoveryseries.org website, we have several resources on the Trinity. Now, the Discovery Series is a collection of over 200 short, online, and in some cases printed Bible study booklets from Our Daily Bread Ministries on a variety of topics. One in particular is called, Do Christians Really Believe in Three Gods? Muslims, Jews, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons insist that the Orthodox Christian doctrine of the Trinity is a hangover from the polytheism of Greek and Roman mythology. And so is that true? Well, this booklet explains why followers of Christ believe in a three-in-one God and why this doctrine of the Trinity has such great significance. You'll find it at discoveryseries.org. And again, that booklet is called Do Christians Believe in Three Gods? And if you type the Trinity into the search box there, you'll see a couple more helpful resources on this topic that you can read. I encourage you to do that. And now back to this Discover the Word study God in Three Persons. Have you ever
1: been faced with a task that just felt overwhelming?
3: Like Ooh. every day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And every okay, time. Could we be a little more specific? <laughs> Actually, every time we gather to have conversations about Scripture, I'll have moments each time where I feel completely overwhelmed. I'm way in over my head. You know, as Vernon Grounds used to say, I've got one nostril out of the water and and I don't even know what we're doing here. Yeah, I feel it all
2: the time. One of the things Mm. that they teach you like with project management is you have to break a project down into its individual parts and pieces and then break it down even more into the steps that you take to accomplish each of those pieces. Mm. Because if you try to think of something like, I'm going to build a website or (laughs) or some project (laughs) like that. I'm going to raise a child. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) Yeah. They are. They're just huge projects, and it is overwhelming if you are thinking about the whole thing that needs to get done. Yeah.
4: Mm -hmm. I just recall, I think a year ago, I went on and did a bunch of trimming of tree branches in my backyard, and I got to trimming and trimming and trimming. By the time (laughs) I was done, I had just an enormous (laughs) problem. And the only way I could do it is I started taking the branches one at a time mm-hmm. and cutting them down into smaller pieces and then into smaller pieces. And I, mm-hmm. you know, the only way I could get them in, into my pickup and get this stuff eventually taken away was just by breaking it down, breaking mm. it down.
3: That's a great yeah. illustration. So you were
1: practicing good project management according to Daniel's description. <laughs> I was trying to survive. <laughs> but, you know, i got to
3: be honest, too. There are times when um, things we face are beyond management. Right. Mm -hmm. And we just kind of call out to God, help me. I can't do this. You know, it's beyond me. You know, maybe it's a natural disaster. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's a task that's beyond our capability. We don't have skills in that area. There Mm -hmm. are times when I just, I'm brought to the end of myself by being overwhelmed. And I just need to cry out for help.
1: Right. Yeah. The bad part about overwhelming tasks is that they bring us to our own sense of inadequacy. Uh, the good thing about overwhelming tasks is that they teach us how to reach out for help. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I want you to think about that overwhelming task thing. And, Mart, I'm going to ask you to read Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20. But before you do, I want to have you put yourself in the place of a fisherman, blue collar, lacking religious training, and then being given this task. Okay, Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen, and 20. And by the way, it's Jesus who's speaking.
4: Okay, so Jesus says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age.
1: Okay, you're <laughs> one of those fishermen How overwhelming does that sound? I mean, (laughs) you've never traveled more than 75 miles away from home, and you're told all the nations? Really? Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bill, I appreciate you pushing us to consider the context and the audience that Jesus is speaking to. But if I'm honest, I have formal theological training, and I have traveled, and that feels overwhelming. Yeah. Right? Like, to go into all the nations— and make Mm -hmm. disciples of all people, (laughs) and teach them everything that Christ has commanded. Yeah,
3: there's a lot of alls and a lot of everythings Mm -hmm. in these words, but you know, Daniel, what's popping, thanks for pointing this out. If you look at verse 20, there's another one, and it's, I am with you always Mm -hmm. to the end of the age. Mm -hmm. So there is a kind of a provision, but it's still Mm -hmm. overwhelming.
4: Yeah, and I think, though, that, Bill, your challenge early on is really important. If we put ourselves in their place they wouldn't be able to look at this challenge from our point of view seeing that really he was giving it to the whole all the followers of christ who would come right
1: yeah yeah see if i'm one of the disciples hearing this challenge i'm thinking okay the first thing i need to do is invent the internet <laughs> 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 you know, i mean it's just so beyond human capacity right to think about a task like this now it helps that jesus frames it beginning by saying in verse 18, all authority is given to him in heaven and earth. And then ends it by saying, I am with you always, even Mm. to the end of the age. Mm -hmm. So we're not expected to carry this out in our own authority. It's his authority. And we're not expected to carry it out by ourselves. He is with us. Hmm. So that takes
4: a little bit of the angst out of it, at least for me. Sure. But if you're one of the 12 and you're only 12, <laughs> imagine what that would have sounded like.
3: Yeah. Well, and we're hearing it, and this is to Daniel's point, we're hearing it 2,000 years later, looking at all that God has done through generations and generations and generations yeah. of people. And they're hearing it, it's up to me, you know, in the next 10 mm-hmm. minutes, you know, I've got to get that done this year because he's coming back. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's huge.
4: That's another side of it, isn't it?
2: Yeah, And it's also a math question, and the math doesn't add up because what their understanding of discipleship is is this relational three-plus years that they've spent with Jesus Hmm. Mm -hmm. every day, and how are 11 people, Mm -hmm. right? Verse 16 says the 11 disciples are with him. How are 11 people going to spend three years— with everyone in the Roman Empire <laughs> to do the same thing that Jesus did. Yeah, and that brings us to the comforting good news
1: that they couldn't. <laughs> um, and, and neither can we. And neither can <laughs> we, and that's why it's good to know that we are promised the participation of the three-person God that we've been talking about this week. And, Mart, you read the whole text, but if you would just read the baptism part where the Godhead's mentioned, would you give us that part again?
4: Yeah, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
1: Okay. So now that in the name of is a really important phrase, and so I know a lot of people who actually have said that if you just say in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer, he has to do it. But that can't be what this is saying, is it?
3: This is a little bit back to my struggle in our prior conversation where it feels like we're being handed a little formula. You know, if we Mm -hmm. put the key in the lock and turn it, ding, it opens. And I don't think that's what it's saying. But Bill, what is it saying?
1: Well, I think it's speaking of our relationship with God vertically and his relationship with us coming in the other direction. And I think that it's seen that way because in the name of kind of has two ideas behind it. One is the idea of identification, Mm -hmm. that when a person is baptized in the name of, they are identifying with the person in whose name they're being baptized. So when a person is being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is a statement of identification. I am identifying myself with this God who has given me life and hope and meaning and purpose and love. That's what our side of the in name of means. Does that make sense so far?
2: Yeah, it reminds me of other places in the New Testament where they talk about, like, he received the baptism of John, Mm -hmm. right? So, like, there is other baptism happening. Whose baptism did you receive? Yeah. And in this situation, it would be I received the baptism from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm
1: -hmm. And by contrast, it's really interesting that Paul points out, you know, except for one or two people, I didn't baptize anybody. It's almost Mm -hmm. like he doesn't want
4: that Mm -hmm. authority, you know. And Bill, following up on this idea of identification, but that only makes sense if you know something about the person, right? That's right. Yeah, it seems to me like I've spent my whole life just gradually learning to know a little bit about this God, Mm -hmm. and it keeps getting better. But it seems like it's such a process of getting to know this one that we are identified with. Yeah. That's really
1: important, Mart. And I think one of the things that helps with that, at least it helps me with that, is the fact that it's not only us identifying with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in the converse, the second part of it is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are identifying with us. Hmm. This is the very end of Matthew's Gospel, but early in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus himself is baptized, if you'll remember. And when Jesus is baptized, the Son, mm-hmm. the Father speaks from heaven, and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. So we see all three persons of the Trinity there, and it's as if the Father and the Spirit are identifying with Jesus in his baptism, and now Father, Son, and Holy Spirit identify with us mm. in our baptism and connect to us that way as well.
3: So what does all this mean in terms of then overwhelming tasks, the task of discipling all nations and baptizing them. What are we to take home from this?
1: In the midst of this impossible task, this too-big-for-us task, this global task, in the midst of all of that, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who, as we saw yesterday, are intertwined and engaged with the life of his people— is also with us in this task so that it doesn't have to be too big for us because it's clearly not too big for him. So what we do is not try to accomplish the Great Commission, as it's sometimes called, but what we try to do is cooperate with our Father in accomplishing his purposes in his world. And that seems to be more like project management, Daniel. It feels a little (laughs) bit more bite-sized and easier to
3: handle. And is it true for any overwhelming task or only the Great Commission. Is this a a larger principle we can take forward in our lives? Well,
1: I think if we go back to yesterday and we see how deeply the Father, Son, and Spirit have intertwined themselves in our lives, I think it applies to everything in our lives because there's nothing in our lives that are not a concern to Him.
2: And I think, Elisa, it goes back to something you pointed us to early in this conversation, the way this ends. Mm. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age.
1: Okay, we're talking about mysterious stuff this week because we're talking about the Trinity. To stay on the theme of mystery, what's your take on the book of Revelation?
2: (laughs) That sounds like you're throwing a bomb out there and asking (laughs) us all to trigger it. You
4: know what? I I have struggled over the years trying to make sense of it. And what makes the most sense to me right now is that the story moves from Genesis to Jesus and then from Jesus to Revelation. And whatever happened in Jesus in solving the mystery of the Old Testament... Hmm. It must have to transition then over into revelation. That's good. We must have to look at it in light of what we learned about him and his father and his spirit Mm. in the cross, in his life, in the love that he showed.
3: And by saying that right there, Marty, you help immensely because we can get lost slash bogged down Mm -hmm. in the details and the language, the end times language. And that's important to look at those details, Mm -hmm. but we can lose sight of the big story of what ultimate redemption will be like. And Mm -hmm. that's what we need to hold as our backdrop.
4: And I think what sticks with me is that just as there was so much that couldn't be understood about Jesus from an Old Testament point of view, so there's so much Mm -hmm. about the revelation that we don't begin to understand unless we look at it through the lens of Jesus, Mm -hmm. what has been revealed in
3: him. That's good. Mm -hmm. One
1: thing that I'll just kind of throw in there to add to that. One of the things we're doing this week with the Trinity is we're trying to not get too stuck in the weeds of all the mysterious elements of the Trinity that we can't understand and try to focus on what the Scriptures have given us. When we look at a book like Revelation that's filled with symbolic language, filled with apocalyptic stuff, as you mentioned, Elisa, it's easy to try to get pulled into the weeds of that, and there's a time and a place for that. Mm. I'm not denying that. But for our purposes today, what I'd like to do is hear, as we continue thinking about the Trinity, I'd like for us to hear a couple of verses, but not hear them the way we usually do. I'd like to do what we did with the Great Commission and try to put ourselves in the place of the first hearers because the first hearers were people living toward the end of the first century. The church was under intense persecution. Hmm. People were being killed because of their faith in Jesus, they were facing a world that was filled with animosity and hatred and vitriol. And I mean, if you were a child of God in the first century in the Roman Empire, you were a walking target. Hmm. Hmm. And in that context, I want you to hear what John, the beloved apostle, who's been exiled onto the island of Patmos, I want you to hear what he writes as he begins to communicate with some of those believers who are experiencing persecution.
3: And he himself is under attack. He himself right. has been imprisoned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay.
2: Okay, Elisa, how about reading Revelation one, four through six for us? Sure, sure. And Bill, one other thing, you mentioned hearers. We have it written. And so it would almost be helpful for us to even close our eyes and just listen to this being read in the same way that people would have heard it originally too, maybe. Oh. I'm going to try that. All right. This is Revelation 1, 4 through 6. John, to the
3: seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever.
1: Amen. Okay, persecuted first century follower of Christ, what jumped out at you?
2: I had my eyes closed so i'm not going to get this exactly right but it was something about jesus being the lord or the king over all other rulers or kings
1: now that's what jumped out at me too and i find that so important because they needed to know that caesar was not the be-all end-all that there is a king over all kings and a lord over all lords and that was the one that they were identified with as we saw yesterday through baptism right So Jesus is the one who's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Beyond that, he's made us to be a kingdom. That's huge.
3: That's what popped at me, Bill. He made us to be a kingdom and priests for him. And that Mm. is radical.
1: Yeah. Just listening to those words kind of in a theological vacuum and trying to listen to them as the first hearers might have heard them in the world in which they lived— really changes how we read those verses and understand them Mm -hmm. as we understand their circumstances as we understand their context of suffering and persecution and being killed for their faith to hear the trinity in a sense being expressed as offering them grace and peace in the midst of all of that Mm
4: -hmm. (laughs) had to have been very very meaningful yeah and i think bill too as you referred again to their suffering and the challenge before them. And to hear him described as the first to rise from the dead, we say that all of our lives we are afraid to die. And they must have had that Mm. thought with them every day. And to be able to say and to believe that Jesus is going to be there on the other side. It had to give them courage in rising to the level of being a a citizen in a kingdom of the Christ. Mm. That's really important,
1: Mart. I've been reading a book called uh, Reading the Grain of Scripture by Richard Hayes. And in it, he says, none of the Bible makes any sense unless it's read in the light of the resurrection of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really so important. The firstborn of the dead, Mm -hmm. the resurrected Jesus, the hope that that can give to them, that even if death does strike them, death isn't the end because Jesus has already taken care of that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, And the other thing that jumps out This is the very beginning of the letter Mm -hmm. of Revelation. This is setting up the themes that the rest of the letter is going to pull from and be Mm -hmm. developing and explaining. And so Jesus being the firstborn from the dead, being the ruler of the kings of the earth, these are the themes that help us maybe unpack some of the other confusing places in Revelation later, <laughs> mm, <yes. laughs> because this is the foundation from which the whole rest of the letter is coming from.
1: And it's also the heart that it's coming from, and it's a heart that begins with grace to you and peace. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> For people in that circumstance, how much they must have needed the sustaining grace of their God and the peace that passes all understanding. Mm-hmm. Now, as we were reading through it, God the Father is very clear. Jesus Christ is very clear. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit seems to be described as the seven spirits who are before his throne. How's that for a curveball? <laughs> <huh? laughs>
3: that messes up the three in one way minute. <laughs> yeah.
1: Again, except for the fact that none of the three persons of the Godhead is a monolithic personality. And just as we see in Jesus many descriptors of who he is and what his heart is. We've talked many times on the program about Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, and how it describes with great detail the heart and character of our Father. I would suggest maybe a possibility, and you don't have to buy into it, but it's just a possibility that might help us navigate our way around that one. Isaiah 11, verse 2. I've asked Daniel if he would read that for us, because here there are seven different aspects of the spirit hmm. that are mentioned and i'm just going to throw it out there what if what john is referring to in revelation 1 is the same thing
2: that isaiah is referring to in isaiah 11 hmm. daniel could you read that for us yeah isaiah 11:2 the spirit of the lord will rest on him him i'm guessing jesus or the messiah yes yes okay the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and strength the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord.
1: Okay, so you have the spirit of the Lord, wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, fear of the Lord. There are seven, I would suggest, aspects of the character of the Holy Spirit that operate in much the same way. Exodus 34 gives us various descriptions with which to see the heart of the Father. Mm -hmm. And that helps me a little bit with that seven spirits, because otherwise, Lisa, you're exactly right.
2: Mm
4: -hmm. It just seems like, wait a minute, where did that come from? Mm -hmm. This just got more complicated. It really did. You know, in my translation here, the New Living Translation, it talks about the sevenfold spirit. There you go.
2: Sevenfold. Who is still to come Ah. from
4: the sevenfold spirit. So Mm. spirit remains in the singular. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I'm just thinking too, like in reality, whether this is the spirit, meaning part of the Godhead or not in this particular reference, there's other places, even in this first chapter where the spirit is referenced. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day in verse 10. And then John is one who often writes about the Spirit mm-hmm. uh, in his gospel. There's multiple chapters, chapters 14 through 17, that describe the Spirit mm-hmm. in very relational terms along with the Godhead yeah. of the Father and the Son. So,
1: Now, I felt like it was important that we not jump over that because some of our listeners say, wait a minute, what's going on with that thing? And I felt like we needed to go there. Mm-hmm. But that's not where I want us to stay. Where I want us to stay is on those first hearers and what they're going through, and having the confidence of a relationship with the kind of God who not only can offer, but can provide grace and peace Mm -hmm. in the midst of their suffering. And as we look at people in our world who are suffering, we know that the same God who could offer grace and peace to them in their challenges can offer grace and peace to us in ours. And that is comfort from the three-in-one God Mm -hmm. who enters into our lives with us.
0: And that is a great comfort to remember that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can minister grace and peace in difficult times. And we don't have to fear tomorrow because our triune God is in control. He has a plan, and in the end, we win. The doctrine of the Trinity there in the book of Revelation helps us to see that. Well, we will wrap up this study called God in Three Persons right after this preview of what's next on the Discover the Word podcast.
4: I have been struck by how, if we look at the
3: Gospels as whole, sort of the whole vista of a Gospel, 28 chapters of Matthew, I would say, leaves you more breathless than certain. In the end, it's like, wow, what did we just experience together? (laughs) That just helps us to really ground our Bible study well. A storied way of thinking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John can really help us look ourselves and say, oh yeah, I saw that earlier in Matthew. So realizing that this is all related, Matthew didn't write a chapter and say,
4: here, take that for a Mm -hmm. while. Matthew Mm. wrote the whole thing to tell us about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done.
0: Janine K. Brown, an expert on the Gospels and a popular writer and teacher, joins the Discover the Word group next time with a fresh way of looking at the Gospels. We'll be looking at Matthew's Gospel and learning to interpret it as a whole narrative about Jesus of Nazareth rather than a piecemeal collection of stories. The Gospels as Stories is what we'll be exploring together on the next Discover the Word podcast with our guest, Janine K. Brown. And now the conclusion of our study called God in Three Persons.
1: Well, this week we dove into the deep end of the pool together to wrestle with uh, this mysterious concept of the Trinity. So what are some of the things we've talked about this week? Just a brief kind of little look backwards.
2: We admitted to it being confusing and something (laughs) that throughout church history has been debated and explored. And to this day, after 2000 years, no one has been able to come up with the perfect metaphor, the perfect picture to explain it. And so if we're stuck or confused, we're in good company with the rest of Christianity.
4: (laughs) (laughs) And I, I think, though, also as well, Bill, early on, you made it clear that, uh, the three do have fairly understandable roles mm. in the New Testament. The Father described unseen, Jesus coming and revealing himself, revealing the Father in his story, and then sending the Holy Spirit after he's ascended to the Father. Well, you see, it makes sense when you see yeah. them operating in that way.
1: I think the way the Trinity works tends to be easier to understand than why the Trinity is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Maybe.
3: And I tend to, this is how I approach most of life. As I'm learning and understanding, I tend to go, yeah, so what? You know, with these concepts. and, And I've come away with some pretty tangible handholds, if I can just throw them out here right now. As we talked about the three persons being all involved in our rescue, I thought to myself, do I remember that there are three (laughs) expressions in the Godhead? Do I have a relationship with the Father? Do I have a relationship with the Son? Do I have a relationship with the Spirit? And how can that enrich my relationship with God? And then I thought, as we talked about how the Trinity is engaged in the body, I thought, oh yeah, when I hit disunity, in my relationships, in the church, wherever I am, can I look to the unity that's in the Godhead and draw strength from that? And then we covered that sometimes we face overwhelming things in life, like the Great Commission, and Jesus promised the unity of the Godhead. And I think, gosh, am I drawing on the Spirit's power, the Father's power, the Son's power in those challenges in my life? And then yesterday, as we looked at persecution, and where grace and peace come from, it it again grabbed me. And I thought, am I really connected to the fullness of what mm-hmm. I can have in God, which is Father, Son, and Spirit? So that's mm-hmm. where I've been going with these conversations.
1: Yeah, I think uh, you know one of the things we did a couple of times this week, both with the disciples hearing the Great Commission, and then yesterday with the first century followers of Christ who were undergoing really intense suffering, for Jesus' name, I think for me one of the things I've kind of wrestled with a little bit is we stand on the shoulders of two thousand years of Christian scholarship, mm-hmm. and as Daniel rightly said, we haven't been able to figure this out. Imagine what the first hearers of these statements about Father, Son, and Spirit would have been trying to sort out in their own thinking, and you know it just gives me a lot of sympathy <laughs> <laughs> for those folks. Sometimes we think, boy, if I got to just been there when Jesus was alive and stuff, and then I think, no, I'd probably be even more confused than I am now, mm. um, because there's so much more here than any of our minds are big enough to really grasp. But, uh, but we're going to try one more time, <laughs> and we're going to go to one more text in the New Testament where we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit mentioned, and this is in a benediction. Now, what's a benediction?
2: It's like a final blessing or a sending out of people, mm-hmm. usually like in a church gathering or something like that, where you're reminding them that God is with them as they go out into the world to be his ambassadors.
1: Yeah, there are two formal parts of church liturgy that many church denominations or groups use. One is a doxology, which is an upward statement of uh, the glory of God. And the other is a benediction, which is an outward statement of blessing to the people of God. And um, what we're going to look at today is in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, and this is actually one of the most beloved benedictions that's used in many many churches around the world it's one that uh, i think has great beauty and dignity to it but also it's one that offers great promise and hope so second corinthians 13 verse 14 and i know each of you uses a different translation so if each one of you would read it in your translation let's see if there are any differences
3: so here's the niv May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Okay.
4: You know, at least I've got the NLT and it's almost word for word. Same oh, wow. Thing. Okay. Yeah, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.
2: Mm-hmm. Mine's similar as well. Although it's funny, my translation ends with verse 13. So there must be a different way that they've broken apart the verses in mine. hmm so in mind, this is 2 Corinthians 13.13, 13, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all.
1: Hmm. Okay, communion and fellowship, mm-hmm. not exactly meaning the same thing, so there's some nuance there. Uh, the first thing that strikes me about how we see this presentation of the three persons of the Trinity is that it's not in the order we're used to it being in. Mm-hmm. what are we used to hearing? Father first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We're used to hearing Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but mm-hmm. here it's Lord Jesus Christ, God, and Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that might be?
4: The thing that comes to my mind is if we didn't have the Son, what would the Father be? I mean, what would the Spirit be? It's almost like we know the Father. Jesus said, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and then when he sends the Spirit, we know that the Spirit's coming in behalf of Jesus, so it's kind of like, Jesus is kind of like the Mm eye-opener. I think you're really onto it there, Mart.
1: I think uh, one of the writers that I was reading when I was putting some of this material together said the persons of the Trinity are listed in the order in which we come to know them. Hmm. We first come to know Jesus, who brings us to the Father, and the Father sends the Spirit. So there's kind of a chronology of how we come into relationship with God in a sense, because it does, as you rightly said, all start with coming to know Jesus.
3: But don't we often hear it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit almost a chronology of how God reveals himself? He mm-hmm. reveals himself as Father through the law, and then the Messiah through Jesus, his Son, mm-hmm. and then the Spirit is given. So this is unique because, as you said, not many times is this order the Son, the Father, the Spirit.
2: Mm, Right. Yeah. The only thing I do here in that, that I would say we'd have to be cautious with though, is there are places where Jesus describes that he is sending the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there is a little bit of a, like both and there as well. Mm. And I also wondered too, sometimes I wonder if we get caught up in these things because like at the beginning of the letter, he uses a little bit different of a phrasing and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) And so like at the beginning, he says it that way, and then at the end, so anyway, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. To your
1: point, Daniel, I think you're right. There's always a danger of reading more into something than needs to be there. I think the unusual nature of this can tell us something. But I don't think we need to camp too hard on what that something might be. But I do think, for instance, that you know Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Uh, you see all three persons right there involved. And it's almost as if here you have that same kind of ordering of ideas, mm, which, yeah, for sure. which to me is just another kind of rich way of making me stop and think, oh, yeah, and there's that too. <laughs> <laughs>
4: you know, and... To repeat, I guess, but it means so much to me when I think of the Father, who can seem aloof, maybe and so great and, and unseeable, mm-hmm. but he's like Jesus. You know, mm-hmm. he's got the heart of Jesus. And when I'm struggling to figure out, well, what is the Spirit doing in my life? It's so helpful to think, well, whatever the Spirit is doing, it, it's like Jesus, and it almost helps you to kind of arrive at some conclusions about you know which way to go and yeah. how to express it.
1: Yeah. Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, He will teach you about me. Uh, He will help you to understand me. And John says, when He came, He came to reveal to us the Father. And I think Mm -hmm. maybe the most important thing as we kind of wind down our conversations on this mysterious idea of the Trinity is to see how wonderfully integrated the Godhead is and how perfectly unified, not only in spirit and in character, but also in working Mm -hmm. so that all these little overlaps, like what Daniel was mentioning earlier, and all of these restructurings of things don't mean as much maybe as the reality that because of Jesus, we have grace, Mm -hmm. and because of the Father, we are loved, and because of the Spirit, we can have fellowship with God and with each other in a way that would be impossible apart from this God in Three Persons.
0: And so as we close this study of the Trinity called God in Three Persons, let me just pray this benediction over those of you who've been studying with us. The words of Paul, concluding his second letter to the Corinthians. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Well, Thanks, Bill, for leading us through a great week of discussions here on Discover the Word about God in three persons. Joining Bill at the table, Mark DeHaan, Elisa Morgan, and Daniel Ryan Day. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, And always point us to Discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Discover the Word. Encourage you to explore other studies with the group on our discovertheword.org website. Our mission in all we do here at Discover the Word and our Daily Bread Ministries is to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. And if you'd like to come alongside and partner with us in this ministry, we invite you to lend your financial support. Simply go online to discovertheword.org and click the Donate button. You'll see some options, and you can give right there. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.